good evening one and all present here it is my great pleasure to be standing here in front of you for the book launch of the curse of gandhari by aditi banerji and she will talk about her book and we'll have some question answer sessions after that i would like to call aditi ji and nitin to escort her I would now like to start our program with the blessings of Lord Ganpati and I request Amulya Bhatt to render a devotional song. ಕಂ ವರದಯ ಸರದಯ ಸರದಯ ಅಮೂಲ್ಯಾಡೆಮಿಸ್ಟ್ರೆಗ್ಯುಲರ್ Indic Academy is a non-traditional university for traditional knowledge. We seek to preserve, promote and protect Indic heritage, Indic civilizational knowledge and values and build a renaissance around it. We have a multi-city presence. Uh, we have city chapters in, in around 20 cities inside India as well as some city, uh, few cities in US, UK and other countries. And we regularly c- conduct talks book launches workshops retreats and other such events to promote indic knowledge and uh, we also give grants to various such uh, similar events 
academic grants, non-academic grants, cultural uh, events grants, and so on and so forth. So our vision is to create an Indic ecosystem, uh, create a revival of uh, Indic civilization knowledge systems. Uh, now to introduce our um, today's uh, speaker, author, uh, Aditi Banerjee. Uh, I, I came across her work first, I think more than uh, around uh, 12, 13 years back. Uh, she used to write on Sulekha, right? Uh, so uh, I did not know her personally then, but I simply enjoyed her writings. It was very thorough, but very simple. Up, uh, very attractive, very easily graspable, but very complicated things. She has done a very detailed uh, rebuttal of, you know, the misrepresentations and such things. So I know her uh, from that, uh, you know, so many years. I I was aware of her work. And uh, personally, we met on, you know, Facebook. And then today it's a social media world. We meet on social media first. And then two years back, we finally met in Delhi, similar Indic Academy event, finally. So, um, Aditi Banerjee is a practicing uh, attorney at Fortune 500 Financial Services Company. She's currently pursuing uh, executive MBA, uh, as MBA, executive MBA student at Columbia University. She co-edited the book, Invading the Sacreds, an analysis of Hinduism studies in America. So this is a book which uh, documents the misrepresentations of Hindu philosophy and culture in uh, American academia and uh, they counter and they expose it. Uh, she has published several essays on Hinduism and Hindu American experience in, in publications such as Columbia Documentary History of Religion in America since 1945 and, and the Buddhist Hindus and Sikhs in America is short history. Uh, she earned a Juris Doctor from uh, Yale Law University and received a BA in International Relations, uh, Magna Cum Laude, from Tufts University. In her free time, she enjoys wandering the Himalayas. You must read her travelogues, they are wonderful. And um, this is her first novel, The Curse of Gandhari. I, I welcome you uh, here, Aditi. Um, ab about the book, uh, just an introduction before I give the floor to her. Uh, it's, ab it's about the uh, book on uh, the very well-known character from Mahabharata, our own Gandhari. But Aditi uh, dwells deep into Vyasa's Mahabharata and recreates the character, makes her alive. And uh, in a very uh, insightful and sensitive portrayal, she rescues Gandhari from being reduced to mere blindfolded woman to someone who was a bhakta of a Krishna, to someone who found fulfillment in that bhakti. The floor is yours, Aditi. Yeah, uh, yeah. So we will we'll do the book launch and uh, then uh, uh, she will speak. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, thank you so much. 
Uh, I'm very grateful to uh, Nitin and Padmavati and Pratyasha for, uh, for hosting this and for being so, so gracious. Actually, Indic Academy has been uh, a great support for me. As, as Nitin was mentioning, about two years ago, we met at a workshop held by Vishwa Adluri and Joydeep Bhagji on the Mahabharat. And that workshop itself inspired so many thoughts in me that also influenced the, the novel. Um, and then Indic Book Club, Indic Academy, really um, tries to support budding writers. Uh, so there were classes that I took, some with Pratyasha, uh, on, on writing and all of that. Without that inspiration, I may not have written this. So I thought I would start by talking about what Veda Vyasa's Mahabharata actually says about Gandhari. Because Gandhari is, um, unlike Draupadi and Kunti, she's not very much discovered or she's not very much discussed. So a lot of times the question I get asked is, why write about her? So in the Mahabharata itself, uh, the critical edition of the Mahabharata, uh, this is the story of Gandhari that we have. We know that Bhishma himself asked for her hand for marriage to Dhritarashtra. And we know that when uh, Gandhari heard about this, uh, at the time of her marriage, she blindfolded herself. And we know that when she came to Hastinapur, her brother uh, Shakuni accompanied her there. And after leaving her there, he and the others went back. Then the next significant incident that we're told about is that Gandhari actually is the, the first, between her and Kunti, she's the first to become pregnant uh, among the, among the two, between the two queens. But Yudhishthira is born first before, before Gandhari gives birth. And what is told in a very striking passage is that when Gandhari hears that Kunti has given birth, she is so overcome with emotion and with feeling that she strikes her belly, and she strikes her belly so hard that the, the fetus is expelled from her body. And at, at that time, that it, it's just a mass of, uh, of lump and flesh that is then divided under Veda Vyasa's instructions into the 101 uh, parts that become her 100 sons and one, and one daughter. It is also said that at the time of Gandhari's confinement, which was two years, uh, she was waiting to deliver for approximately at least two years, uh, that during this time, Tritarashtra also sired another son, uh, an illegitimate son with another woman, uh, Yuyutsu, uh, who actually became an ally of, of the Pandavas. Then... There's another, uh, the next significant incident that happens is when Krishna comes for his last attempt at di diplomacy before the war begins. They're trying to stop Duryodhan from going to war. And nothing is working. No one can get through to him. And at that moment, they actually call Gandhari to come to the, to come to the assembly and to address her son. And this pa for a few pages, there's a very eloquent speech given by Gandhari when she counsels Duryodhan on the, the futility of this war. 
And she says there's no way he can win this war and that winning the kingdom, winning fame and riches is not worth anything if he does not have dharma and if he's not on the side of goodness. It's a very beautiful discourse on dharma and from that itself you can tell how learned and intelligent Gandhari was, how strong a queen she could have been. But at the end of that, her son does not listen to her and the, and the war commences. Um, one of the famous stories that Gandhari is known for is, uh, is that she told Duryodhan to appear before her naked so that she could look upon him and protect him with her gaze. That actually is not in the, the critical edition version of the Mahabharata, but that's a, one of the famous stories uh, associated with her. The next thing that happens is when the war is, is over and all her sons, including Duryodhan, have, have died, Gandhari has, uh, she, she's taken to the, uh, she has a supernatural vision, a divine vision of the battlefield. And she can see all of the corpses on the field. And again, the Mahabharata spends several pages where she just recounts the, diff the soldiers lying on the field. She, she names them and she, she laments the wives who have been widowed and the mothers who have lost their sons. And she lays this on Krishna's shoulders. She's talking to Krishna. It's actually her uh, saying this to, Krishna, to Sri Krishna. And then she says, Krishna, you could have prevented this war if you had wanted to. We are helpless, but you could have stopped this from happening. But you did not. And at that moment, she curses uh, Krishna that in 36 years, just as we all have lost, our, our families have been broken. The Vrishnis and, and the, the clan of, of Krishna will destroy themselves. And, uh, and of course, that, that happens to come true later. Uh, but, but Krishna actually accepts that, uh, that curse with a, with a smile. But then he also points out to Gandhari all the ways in which she herself uh, she, he, he reminds her of what she had said to Duryodhan about dharma and uh, that he was not on the side of dharma and that therefore this was just the workings of, of karma and that she should understand that. And that's basically all that is said about Gandhari in the Mahabharata. It's said that after the war, 12 years after the war, uh, Dhritarashtra no longer wanted to stay in the court at Hastinapur. And so he and uh, Gandhari decided to go to the forest. Kunti joined them, and so did Sanjaya, who was his, his charioteer. Uh, and then all that is said is that a few years later, uh, there had been a forest fire, and in that fire, they had all, uh, they had all passed away. Um, the other thing that is uh, said about Gandhari is her piety was so strong that she had gotten a boon from Shiva himself, that she would bear 100 sons. This was before she was married. Uh, and then Vedavyasa himself also blessed her with the, with the same boon. So this is just the, the structure of Gandhari that's given in the Mahabharata. And for me, from, a, from childhood, I was always fascinated by her. And for me, the moment she blindfolded herself so she could not see what her husband could not see was so inspiring. I thought here is a, it's such an act of devotion and loyalty and sacrifice. I admired that. 
And then as I grew older and I started learning more about the character, I thought about what a woman of strength and iron willpower was, she was, that when she heard about Kunti giving birth, she struck her belly and it was so hard that she, she basically gave birth or delivered the fetus in, in that way. And for someone to have the tapobala where she could curse Bhagavan himself, there must have been something very amazing about her character. On the other hand, she was, uh, she was not able to influence her husband and her sons to act in furtherance of dharma. And in that way, she's an interesting contrast to someone like Kunti, who also had a very difficult job uh, uniting the five brothers as the Pandavas and keeping them together and united, but she was able to succeed. So Gandhari to me was a more tragic character because she had that nobility in herself. She understood what dharma was, but she was not able to, um, to impart that to the, to the family members closest to her. And then it also seems in the reading between the lines of the Mahabharata that there was this great bitterness and regret within her. So it talks about after the war is over, Yudhishthira appears in front of her. And just through the mere corner of her eye behind the, the blindfold, she can see his, uh, the, like, a part of his feet. And there's so much anger and bitterness within her that at her mere sight, his toenails be turn black. And Yudhishthira becomes frightened and he actually steps back. But this is the kind of tapobala uh, and strength uh, within her. And then what interested me is, um, so the Mahabharata itself is not judgmental. It doesn't tell us what to think of the different characters and personalities. But people are very judgmental. Um, so nowadays there's a lot of uh, like so-called feminist interpretations and I would hear uh, different interpretations that when Gandhari blindfolded herself it was not really an act of devotion, it was an act of revenge or spite or, or martyrdom and it was her uh, passive aggressively reacting to, to a situation where she could not control who her, who her husband would be. And, uh, and then the other thing that I would hear is that, well, in that situation, she could have been the eyes and ears for Dhritarashtra. And if she had not blindfolded herself, she could have been more powerful. And with her senses, perhaps she could have been a better mother to her sons um, and maybe prevent the war from happening. And when I started this book, the original thing that I started with was I wanted to answer this question, uh, the question of her blindfold and what it meant. Um, but I think anytime you write a book, if in the process you yourself as a writer do not discover something new, then the book hasn't really achieved its purpose. And one of the things as I started exploring the character of Gandhari was how nuanced and complex her, her character was. And that was really unfair to reduce her to the symbolism of her, of her blindfold. That was much more meaningful than that. Um, and I also think that it wasn't just an act of revenge or bitterness, because if that was the case, then she would have just been a hypocrite. And then she wouldn't have had the tapobala to protect her son with immortality or to curse Sri Krishna. She just would have been a spiteful woman. So that was one thing. Uh, and so in the process of writing this book, I got about halfway through, 
And then I couldn't figure out how to actually finish, uh, finish the book or, or where to take, uh, to take her character. And I remember I met with my Diksha guru um, one afternoon, and I was explaining to him, this is the story I'm trying to write, and this is kind of where I am. And he had said just one line to me, but that line really stuck with me. He said, Gandhari was an extraordinary woman. Even Sri Krishna had so much respect for her. And then when I thought about it, I thought, that's, that's true. For someone that earns the respect of even Sri Krishna, there must be something very great about her, even while there's something tragic about her. So that was the kind of ethos or the North Star I tried to keep as I, as I wrote, this, uh, as I wrote this, this story. And the other thing that I was trying to do with this is because I felt I have always had this fascination and attraction toward Gandhari, is I think it was such a, in some ways her story was so tragic. Um, she was someone who I think really could have been a great queen, who understood dharma, who had nobility in her character, but she was stuck in a difficult situation where she was surrounded by people who were wicked or, or weak. And in that situation, she had little uh, influence over them. And it just seemed like she could never quite rise above her, her circumstances. And so what I want to see is, is there any way, and this is where there's some creative liberties, where she could have found some kind of peace or reconciliation at the end of her life. And also this relationship between her and, uh, her and, and, and Sri Krishna, and whether there was a way he could have helped her find that, that peace. So ultimately, that's what, the, that's what the book was about, and that's kind of the, uh, the journey that it, that it goes through. So starting from that skeleton that's there in Veda Vyasa's Mahabharat, um, I kind of imagined her, her girlhood growing up in the kingdom of Gandhara, her relationship with Subala, her father, uh, her brother Shakuni, who of course has a pivotal role in the story. And then when she comes to Hastinapur, her experience, um, her rivalry with Kunti, her relationship with Satyavati, who again was a very strong, powerful, pragmatic woman, um, her relationship with Pandu, with her husband, and trying to explore these different facets of her, of her character. And in doing so, I was very... Um, I was very nervous about one thing, which is for me, like the Mahabharat, like all the, the, the Itihasa and the Puranas, it's a sacred text. And it was very important to me to, to, to stay true to the original ethos and worldview of the Mahabharat and to the essence of her, of her character. So that was something I really, uh, I really tried to do and that was, um, that was important to me. Um, and so that was really kind of the, the book I, I said about uh, trying to write. Um, so I think I'll pause there. Uh, and then I thought, uh, you know, being especially with, with, with Nitin here, it would be nice to have maybe some, uh, like a dialogue or, or something like that, or if there are any uh, questions or, or comments, uh, happy to, to address those too. Aditi ji and Nitin between them. Uh, if you have any more questions, you can pass on the questions as well. So, you have kind of already answered this question, but I thought you, should, you can elaborate on it. So, why Gandhari? What made you choose her? I mean, uh, you, you are working on this book for some two years, right? 
So, when you started or when you decided that you want to write this book or a book on Mahabharata or a character on Mahabharata, I mean, what was the thought process? I mean, why Gandhari specifically or uh, you always wanted to do Gandhari or it, it so happened that you finally decided it uh, like that? Yeah, so, she has always been one of my uh, favorite characters and I think what I like about her or what, I, what draws me to her is because she is complicated, she's, you can't pigeonhole her as being good or bad. She's clearly not a conventional heroine, yet she's also not like a villainess. So she's somewhere in, in the middle, and I think that's pretty rare in our, in our literature, because where women are usually either very virtuous and heroic, or they're like a rakshasi. Um, so I think to have someone of that complexity and nuance was, was very interesting to me. And also someone of that just incredible depth of willpower and strength. Um, and then I also think for someone in her, her situation, um, like even in, t in today's world, I think as women we can relate and maybe you find yourself in unfortunate circumstances or where the people who surround you may not be aligned with you, but. And, and, and what you do in that, in that situation. So I think the Mahabharata is all about dharma and finding dharma in very difficult situations where they're competing uh, priorities or things like that. So I think in that way, she's still very relevant uh, today. And the other thing um, that I think is just, uh, so I think, I think it's easy to imagine that Gandhari would not have been happy about marrying Dhritarashtra. He was a blind prince. He was never going to inherit the throne. Uh, and in the Mahabharata, he also comes across as being, at, at, at best, weak-willed, at, at worst, uh, something more nefarious. Um, but that in spite of that, actually, the Mahabharata says that from the moment she knew she would marry Dhritarashtra, she never thought of another man. So this, uh, this pativrat that she had, this devotion and loyalty to someone that you know, who, who, who did not really live up to those standards. I think, again, uh, it's just a very, speaks strongly to her, to her character. So that was also something that was important. Um, that's wonderful. So um, the, the Mahabharata specifically mentions that uh, she was devoted to her husband uh, throughout the life, right? Uh, so in your book, um, the, in Vyasabharata also, this blindfolding happens immediately before coming to Hastinapur itself? Uh, yes, it's, um, I, it's I, I can't remember the exact passage, but huh. it says as soon as she hears about mm -hmm. it, I think it's before, she act before the marriage actually happens. Okay. Uh, so uh, you made an interesting comment about how uh, uh, we should interpret uh, the blindfolding act as a her devotion to her husband and uh, you know she never thought about anybody so this shows her pativrata uh, so um, um, this is a very interesting concept to me because today this concept of pativrata is completely you know tr uh, the, the, the feminist and the leftist the whole narrative is against the whole notion of pativrata astri but if you take the dharma shastras and all this is a very important concept so if it um, when i think about gandhari and um, uh, i was thinking on this on the aspect of pativrata uh, dharma so while she was devoted to her and that aspect of pativrata dharma is fulfilled but also pativrata dharma means sahadharma charini 
so can we see that she failed in this aspect by blindfolding herself because if if she could have been as you said you know the eyes and ears of dhritarashtra and she could have uh, you know if not blindfolded she could have controlled her sons better she could have guided them better she could have even guided the husband better in the ways of dharma which she definitely knew so in a sense her blindfolding wow uh, prevented her from from doing the pativrata dharma in a fuller sense uh, what what are your comments on this so i think it's very easy to take that view and that was my view kind of going into the story um but when you read it the, the mahabharat itself seems to really admire her for this blindfolding so like i said um that seems to be the source of her of her tapobala like you know um like veda vyasa also admires her she's she's kind of described as being this very devoted uh devoted wife so i think the mahabharat takes that view but it also does it doesn't explicitly says that but i think it implicitly raises this question uh which is what is but would she have been better if she done it the other way so in one sense you have this power or the strength that comes from sacrifice uh and then on another side if she had not done so there would have been power and strength she would have gathered through her purushartha which would have been better in those circumstances and then i found that that's actually for me that was an impossible question to answer and i think it's that once she made even blindfolded i think she still could have been a better queen she still could have been intelligent she could have been perhaps more um active and adamant when shakuni was there to counter him or perhaps she could have tried and i think it's also difficult in those circumstances in that time and place how much of a role did she actually have where she could have let's say banished shakuni from the court or uh, really taken a, a stronger role as as a woman in, in in those times um but i think the blindfold itself did not prohibit her from being a more active queen mother and wife i think part of that was her own feeling of being helpless in those in those circumstances uh can we think about like you know uh, she kind of turned away from the world turned inside and into her sadhana and tapasya and all but at the same time she was not fully free from the attachments to the uh, to the world so, so this kind of caused lot of problems uh, she could not perform her worldly duties to the best of her ability perhaps but at the same time though she made a individual progress in the sadhana still she was attachment was also there yeah no that that's a very good point because clearly that's there otherwise she wouldn't have had this bitterness where like she blackened you these stars to- toenails and and things like that uh, and so there is this uh so I, i think there is that question and again i think this is why this is relevant for for a lot of women nowadays who when we find ourselves in uh bad difficult circumstances we may think we just may want to like martyr ourselves or else passive aggressively you know resign ourselves to the fate but inside we can't let it go and then is it better can you somehow either rise above that internally or externally do things uh do things differently so i think that's definitely part i think that's one of the the questions raised by her her character and that that ambiguity is is always uh is always there so I, as i was reading the first few chapters of your book um one thing that struck me was 
huge similarity between Bhishma and Gandhari. In a similarity in the sense, there were completely different people. Uh, but there is one uh, in their in the character arcs in the in the Mahabharata. Both of them made a very Bhishma vow. Bhishma got his name because of that vow. And Gandhari's very character, uh, the, the blindfolding kind of a defined her, turned her uh, life forever. Uh, so, and both of them, if you, if today, I mean, um, if we are seeing from a outside a neutral perspective today, you know, uh, kind of trying to judge them for our own purpose, not in the sense of judging their life or decisions, uh, but more in the sense of uh, uh, what can we learn from the Dharma Sankata situation. Because clearly both of them were in a Dharma Sankata situation. She was getting married to a person she had uh, no liking, a blind uh, king, uh, and uh, Bhishma was you know, suddenly asked to renounce everything. So, uh, and both of them took a very great vow. But now retrospectively speaking, the whole Mahabharata war, we can squarely blame on Bhishma to begin with. And secondly, on Gandhari, if only the both decided to break their vows, Bhishma may not have been a Bhishma if he had broken his vow. But still the Kuru lineage would have survived. A better king, a True king, in a sense, a true true heir could have been there, would have completely avoided the war. Uh, what what do you think yes. about this? And actually, there is a, I think it's a dialogue between Sri Krishna and Arjuna where this is actually explained. And I think Krishna is the one who actually says that uh, that old man, because of this vow and not deviating from that vow, all of this has happened. Um, and I think the Mahabharat points to both sides. One is just the power of the vow and in, uh, in, in when Bhishma takes his vow like flowers fall from the sky it's, 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 it's admired and it's respected but I think that's where the Mahaprabhu because it shows both sides so it also shows that other side where because he refused to deviate from that vow even when Satyavati asked him to then everything else uh, everything else followed from that and same you could say of, of Gandhari and I think the from that is um to be very careful when you take a vow, because in, it, it, when you take it for that moment, you cannot imagine all of the consequences that will that will come from that. And so, I think one of the things is being wary of, of when and how to take a vow, and then sticking to that. I don't. I, I think there is a respect for once you've taken the vow of sticking to that vow, um, but that does. There is a cost to that. There's a cost that Pishma and Gandhari paid, and then there's a cost that the kingdom paid. And I think one of the questions for Pishma is, at that moment as a prince, was the higher dharma to his father because he wanted to marry Satyavati? Or was it to the kingdom for whom he was the crown prince? And uh, was that that's a conflict there. And I think the same you could ask also of Gandhari for the reasons you mentioned earlier. I think that the, 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 the Shantanu's uh, desire itself to get married at that age could be questioned on the basis of dharma at the cost of the kingdom. Yes. So that's an interesting, never-ending discussion. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I remember the, how dharma is sukshmati sukshma, yes. it's very difficult. Yes. So the, the next question is, in, uh, Mahabharata have so many strong women characters. There is Kunti, there is uh, Draupadi, obviously. But there are also other minor characters like Madhavi, yeah. the most abused in the West. Yeah. Uh, 
western academia and there are many other characters so uh, how do you see uh, gandhari uh, different uh, from others um, because clearly even kunti had a, a no character in mahabharata is full white or full black perhaps except for krishna we can say who is beyond the white and black the, the all people on the realm were mixture including yudhishthira mm-hmm. so how do you see this you know um, uh, compared to gandhari compared to say uh, kunti or, uh, or draupadi i think it's difference so for example even though gandhari is admired or you know for her for her vow let us say but she's not like one of the panchakanya she's not held up as someone who should be followed or revered in that sense so i think she's there at someone you can say she's very admirable in certain respects but she's also there as like a cautionary tale so i think she's kind of somewhere in between um and i i think that's that that's how i would how i would how would place her in that in that continuum i think draupadi is clearly i mean she's the the catalyst of the war she's on the side of dharma she's the one who makes her husbands you know who wakes them up and in, instigates them to do the dharmic thing she's clearly like a heroine um kunti again with what happens with karna or, or other instances you can say it's not black and white but i think without kunti like the pandavas would not have stayed together it's because she understands the importance of them being united she adopts her co-wives two sons and treats them as her own when she sees that all of her sons desire draupadi she makes sure that all of them uh, marry her so there's no conflict with, uh, among them so i think she's held up as one of the you know the a heroine in the in the sense of keeping the pandavas together and keeping them on the side of of dharma Uh, I think Gandhari is more complex than that. It's, it's not at the same, uh, the same level. Uh, listening to you, one thought just uh, came to me. Uh, we can characterize Gandhari's character as, you know, the path of tapas or tapas shakti, whereas uh, Kunti was kind of a karma yogi, you know, in the world, keeping the family together. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she was not doing anything, any special tapasya other than this, that, that was... itself uh, but for gandhari it's a complete tapasya bhakti and uh, such path that just struck me <laughs> that that's interesting because even kunti's boon comes from durvasa when she's serving him and like in, in karma yoga uh, she's like looking after him and then things like that versus her herself doing like penance or puja so uh, now let's you know move on from the particular book the cause of gandhari to um your life uh, uh, so uh, how was uh, growing up in us you're born in us itself right so as a hindu how how was the journey you know were you always uh, kind of rooted or or i, I keep you know you keep reading uh, stories you know of people who become uh, especially who were born in the west uh, become kind of derooted and then rediscovering their uh roots so, so do you have a story like rediscovery or your story is more always of a you know yes um, so growing up i didn't have any background to traditional hinduism um what had happened is i think when i was about 10 years old or so we were cleaning my brother's room and in this shoe box there was a small picture of krishna 
and uh, that was it belonged to my brother and then he said oh I don't want that and I saw that picture and I was so attracted to it I said no like I want it and then I kept it in my room and from then I had this attraction to, to Krishna and as a child my brother and I we would come to India every year in the summer to spend time with our grandparents at that time I would see like the Mahabharata on TV so I had like some uh, like some osmosis of, of that through, through that but I remember the first time when I was about 13 years old, we had gone to Vrindavan. And going to Vrindavan had just transformed me and like, Krishna is real and I could feel that. So, so that was kind of what started my, my journey. Um, and at that time, there wasn't so much of an internet where you could look up and, oh, I want to learn about Krishna. So I really wanted to read the Srimad Bhagavat. But it was impossible to find a good English translation other than Prabhupada's from, from ISKCON. Um, so I would go to the library, to bookstores, and I would look up books on Hinduism. And it was always like Western, very anti-Hindu books. So if there was a book on the Ramayana, the first page would be about how Rama was terrible and all of this, this bad thing. So there was nothing that was either neutral or, or positive or written from a, like a Hindu perspective in English that I could easily find. So like I would read the Mahabharata by um, Sri Raja Gopalachari, which is very small. And I always wanted to read the, the full one. So I had this kind of thirst, but it was very difficult to find unbiased information. So like when I was in, in high school, I took a, a class on ancient India, uh, ancient Indian history. I was excited, like, oh, now I'll finally learn something. And then my teacher came in and said, oh, like there's this newspaper article about this plane landed in some remote village in India and the people came out and they worshiped the plane and oh, these people are so strange. So this kind of bias and uh, discrimination was there through the education system. And as, uh, as Indians were taught to revere and respect our teachers and not question them. So it was very difficult for me to like, learn my own heritage even though I wanted to. But I think also this struggle made me more aware of the value of it and also more passionate about learning about it and trying to, to, uh, to, to, pro to promote it. So for me it's been uh, a journey and, and a struggle um, but that's, it's, it's only made me more, more rooted in it. Uh, share with us about your first book, you know, the, 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 that you edited, the Invading the Sacred. So I understand it's basically written on and the Hindu phobia in the Western Academia, the school textbooks and other things, right? Can you shed some light on that? Sure. So um, I remember when I was in college, I had taken some like basic courses about Hinduism and this is just like Hinduism 101, so this is something anyone in college uh, goes to to learn something basic. If you go to a class about like Islam or Buddhism or anything, it's, it's always very positive. Uh, but this class on Hinduism, when we were taught the Ramayana, we weren't even taught anything about the story. It was just, oh, this is like a, a conflict between the Aryans and the Dravidians. And it was all about like this kind of racist um, reading of the Ramayana. And this isn't like a graduate course, this is like... 18-year-olds are going to this class. And it was very discouraging because instinctively I knew it was wrong, but I had no evidence for it, nor could I say what, where my professor was, was coming from. Um, so I remember um, it was between my college and law school days I started discovering the writings of Rajiv Malhotra on this. And what was brilliant about what he did was he made everything systematic. Uh, so he talked about where this like Hindu phobia 
comes from, that there is like this coterie of, of Western scholars and intellectuals linking it back to the colonial times uh, and, and how everything worked now and how systematic it was. And that was great for people like me because then we had some support and foundation to say, yes, this is wrong and this is why it is wrong. Um, so even in that class, for example, I had heard this thing from uh, Jeffrey Kripal about Sri Ramakrishna and Swami Vivekananda, who I'd grown up revering, that they had some kind of uh, inappropriate um, relationship because uh, Sri Ramakrishna was treating uh, Swami Vivekananda like a, like a lover or something like that. It's just, just rubbish. Um, but when you learn something in school, it just seems like, oh, it's official, this must be true. So it, it shakes you, and unless you have the background and someone else to say, no, this is where, you know, this is the mistranslation and things like that, then you don't have the, the ammunition to, to fight back. And so what I appreciated about what Rajiv and others that he was working with were doing was going and not just saying this is wrong or it's anti-Hindu, but you know, these are the actual mistranslations from Bengali into English. Some of these professors, like, they don't even know what Bengali is or they and Sanskrit, and this is where they're just importing things from European history or other things. So just having that helped give uh, the confidence to me and to others that we can learn our heritage, you know, ourselves without these intermediaries who are not qualified to be teaching us about ourselves. Wonderful, wonderful. Uh, one last question I have is, um, so the, for example, your book is based on Mahabharata. And today, you know, the Mahabharata and Ramayana, especially Ramayana, uh, comes up in controversies and discussions every other day. So we have different schools of thought. Uh, one who want to, you know, uh, historicize the text completely. And the one, uh, the other side who wants to completely, you know, discard it as a mythology. And uh, somehow I feel, you know, the, our, our Indian terminology like Itihasa is more nuanced uh, than either calling it as history or as mythology um, or legend for that matter. So uh, while working in these books and even a um, lot of retellings in, uh, that, that is coming up, lot of, lot of uh, people approach these texts uh, in a historical manner like uh, what was the historical condition at the in fiction novels I am speaking what was the historical condition like that so we should portray such historical condition so in your opinion uh, what is the best way to approach this text should we take Mahabharata and Ramayana as uh, manuals of history or more uh, uh, nuanced way as a documents of our uh, civilizational structure you know uh, something that has documented the entire uh, culture um, or the, the, the essence of our culture, cultural complex, document of cultural complex. So uh, w what is your opinion on this? So I think there is some space for, um, you can learn certain things about history from reading the Ramayana and the Mahabharata, but fundamentally they're not historic documents because if, if you were to say so, then they're limited in, in, in time to like something of the past period. Um, but the, the function of the Itihas and the Puranas is really to take the Vedas and bring it to the, to the general population and make it real and tangible for us. So if you look at it as, as a historical document, then I think you kind of 
demean or limit the, the importance and the, and the relevance of it. And I think also our vision, the Tharmic vision of reality is not a historic-centric one. Um, so for us, reality is beyond time and space. So Krishna is real, not whether he lived 5,000 years ago or not, but because if I sit in Upasana or if I listen to Krishna, he becomes a real presence before me. I have a real relationship with him. That's the reality of Krishna. And then it doesn't matter what happened uh, 5,000 years ago or whatever, because when you have that experience and the direct Anubhava, it is real and it has a real transformation for you. And um, when you open the Mahabharata, if you think of it as a book, as of something that happened in the past, then you lose out on something. For me, every time I open the Mahabharata, it's, 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 it's real, it's, it's living. Gandhari is still like a living presence. It's not just some historical character, because in that case, why should it matter what someone lived 5,000 years ago to, to me now? Um, but instead, the Mahabharata is really about, I think it still has such a grip on us, so all of our literature, our movies and things like that still reflect those, those themes. And it's because it's so universal and the real relevance for it is us to, for the Ma part specifically, is learning what is Dharma and Dharma for the Kaliyuk, because this is like Krishna is actually ushering in the Kaliyuk when there aren't clear heroes or clear villains, where there's a lot of gray and how do you live a Dharmic life in that, in that situation. So I think that's how you have to approach the Mahabharata and the Ramayana. It's fine to glean some historical things from them, um, but that's not their ultimate, uh, ultimate purpose. And we shouldn't become so distracted by that uh, that we actually lose sight of what the importance and the, and the relevance is. I remember Vishwad Luri saying that, you know, the, the text is a universe and uh, there is an avatarana of Bhagavan into the text itself. So it is the Rama or Krishna who makes the text real, perhaps much more real than our day-to-day -day reality and not the historical facts or his uh, uh, or the historical event uh, aspect of it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So I open the floor to the questions from the audience. If there are any questions, uh, please do ask. Listening to you, my name is Arvind Deshpande. I am a retired person. I am a retired engineer here. I just wanted to know whether uh, you have been able to lay your hands on the book Parva by Mr. S. L. Bhairappa, which talks about Mahabharata. And if the answer is yes, then was there any uh, usefulness, if at all, in the writing of this book? But curious to hear your, your thoughts, if you'd like to share any. See, Mr. S. L. Bhairappa is an author who has settled down in Mysore and uh, he has written a number of books. One of his famous books is Parva, which is based on the Mahabharata. And he brings to life all the characters there. So it would have been, uh, in my opinion, may not be uh, everybody's opinion, it would have been interesting if uh, you could have read that part of the book in order to uh, use it as one more source of information before writing this book. However, now having written this book, I will still urge you to see whether you can read that because that is one of the books which has been translated into English. Thank you. Read, read, yeah. read the book. 
honestly i'm a little sorry i came a little walked in a little late uh, no problem <laughs> okay because i usually come in time and the program doesn't start in time so today <laughs> i am late it started in time. anyway my question to you is uh, i'm sure you must have done a lot of research during your course of uh, writing this book so have you ever come across any uh, like any material which talks about the relationship between gandhari and karna anywhere gandhari and karna yeah because i am very much interested in karna like i like to read a lot about him so have you ever come across any uh, book or any research material which talks about her relationship with karna how was it yes now uh, for me my main source of research was really the the critical edition of the of the mahabharat because i wanted to immerse myself into veda vyasa's uh, ethos and and world view so that's what i kind of really focused on um i do think it's an interesting relationship and actually in my book i have a little bit between the relationship between gandhari and and karna but that's more based on i would say somewhat my imagination but also just kind of this understanding of both of their characters through veda vyasa's uh, mahabharat thank you madam i have one conflict uh, you know krishna in the mahabharata uh, he is fought for the upliftment of uh, justice and uh, and uh, anyaya uh, dharma in spite of that uh, gandhari curses him uh, i felt very bad regarding this gandhari did she know that krishna is fighting for justice i think um i think to put it in 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 context uh because there is that that part that i mentioned earlier where gandhari is counseling her son not to fight the war and every time she blesses uh duryodhan she says she always says victory will go where dharma is uh-huh. and she's so learned in her exposition of of dharma and i think she she knows that that krishna is on the side of dharma and that her sons have no chance against krishna i think she understands that but yet there's the pathos of a mother who has lost 100 yeah, yeah. sons yeah. uh who sees the battlefield and if you ever read the description in the mahabharat it describes that the the corpses are broken in half and they're so dismembered that you cannot even tell which head belongs with which body just identifying the corpses is so so difficult all the vultures are circling it's a very graphic uh description So imagining that someone who has not seen anything for decades and this is what she is seeing I think any person would be overcome at that moment and then she sees Krishna who is all powerful uh-huh. who knows everything and she must have thought in that moment if he wanted to he could have stopped this or he uh-huh. could have prevented it and yeah, yeah. in a sense that's that's true what's beyond the powers of of Sri Krishna but he had another purpose it was ushering in kali yuga the great heroes of the time had to go so i think that moment when she curses him it's it's not so much that she's uh, fighting against uh, shri krishna i think it's just she's overcome at that moment part of it is her as a mother as a queen who's been defeated but part of it is someone that anyone would feel it's a great terrible war that really decimates the the kingdom i think anyone would feel the tragedy of that and i think that's what she's voicing at that at that moment versus judging or condemning shri krishna as a as a person uh, thank, in a thank comic you. sense thank you listening to you 
actually even i was wondering like uh, the curse of gandhari the name itself stuck me and uh, today we had lot of answers to that questions actually uh, now i would like to thank the indic academy shri harikiran ji who has been the uh, source of uh, energy for doing all this programs here and uh, i would like to thank institute of engineers the photographers and the videographers rajendra uh, sound system by hebar and our media fraternity uh, and one and all present here thank you for being here i know this is a week day and many of you could not attend but still uh, most of them have come down thank you a lot